Podcast. Hi, and welcome back to Running Unopposed. This is Rose. I'm Gabe. Uh, do I say that? Intr- yeah, introduce yourself. Oh, okay, I introduced myself. Oh, sorry about that. Uh, hi, uh, I'm Thomas. I'm a guest. Yes, Thomas is another guest presenter. Uh, we are continuing our tour of Europe, and we will be discussing Oliver J. Flanagan, which uh, Thomas has very nicely present is going to be presenting for us. So without further ado, let's get into it. Yeah, perfect. Uh, so I guess I'll ask um, for yourselves and the listener, how much about uh, Irish politics do you guys know? Uh... I know that there's two parties, both called F something, that are yeah. the main liberal and conservative party, and a lot of them come from whether or not they accepted the Treaty of Independence that ended the Anglo-Irish War. Yeah. I don't know a ton. I know very generally, like, the Northern Irish political parties in the UK parliament and where they are on the political spectrum and some of the differences, and I can name some people, but I don't know all the intricacies of Irish history and its relationship to British history, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's absolutely fine. And hopefully uh, I, I've done this in such a way where you won't need to know that. Uh, uh, so there's going to be like some background stuff, which we will have to get into. But, um, you know, hopefully, like I think I think Oliver J. Flanagan is actually quite a good introduction, especially to Southern politics, because he's just involved in so much shit, but as like a side character. <laughs> that's our bread and butter really he's kind of, would you be would it be safe to say that he's kind of the forest gump of irish politics yeah maybe yeah if forest gump is a massive anti-semite yeah oh <laughs> oh boy <laughs> i wasn't expecting that just because i feel like most anti-semitic politicians we co- we've covered and will cover are either american or uh eastern european i feel uh, well, welcome to the rare uh, Western European uh, anti-Semitic position. I say rare, but they, they are not rare. Yeah. Does Ireland even have Jews? Uh, we have some. Yeah, a couple thousand. Okay. Anyway. Uh, well, so the Western European anti-Semites you hear about, most of them are from, I feel like, like most of the ones at least that you hear about, like the notable ones are mainly from Germany and France. Hmm. So welcome to the rare Irish anti-Semite, I suppose. Yeah, we uh, this podcast is fun because you get to discover new and exciting forms of bigotry you never even <laughs> thought about before. <laughs> All right. Is there like a type of guy in Ireland who really hate who really hates you if you're from County Cork? Uh that definitely was a thing. Wait, actually? Yeah, uh, in, in certain time periods and in certain places, yeah. Oh, interesting. Interesting. All right. Okay. So, so uh, let's get I into we'll something start. legendary. Right. So Oliver James Flanagan was born on the 22nd of May, 1920 in Mount Mellick, County Leash. His father, Charles, was a stonemason working for Great Southern Railways, and his mother, Mary, came from a family of carpenters. So they were working class. Just like they Jesus. Were, yeah. Uh, they were, yeah, if, if Jesus was Irish, which he was, as we all know. And it was also not Jewish. Yeah. That's correct. He was an Irish Catholic. Absolutely. Uh, the, the key facts about Jesus. 
But yeah, uh, so family was Jesus quite wasn't white because he was Irish. <laughs> so family was quite poor, quite working class, uh, and Mount Melek was not exactly the richest place in the world uh, during this period. It was actually quite deindustrialized uh, because of British economic policy. Blah blah, doesn't matter. Uh, but specifically, be uh, being quite poor in Ireland in this period of time is notable because Ireland was not exactly the richest place in the world in the 1920s. It was a colony of the British Empire. And speaking of the fact that Ireland was a colony of the British Empire, Oliver J. Flanagan is born in the midst of the War of Independence. So uh, there's a lot I can say about the War of Independence. Uh, I could bore you out by being a big nerd about it for quite a while. But we'll just talk about the origins of the southern state, some of the stuff about the south and how it works. Uh, which is going to come up in Flanagan's story uh, time and time again, if that's all right with you. Yeah, go for, go it. for it. It's your script. Right. Go however you want. Grant. So, all right. The bare bones that you need to know is that in 1923, there's a civil war after the War of Independence over what the future of Ireland should be. On the one hand, you have the Republicans or the anti-treatyites who are fighting for a united Irish Republic outside of the British Empire. And on the other hand, you have the pro-treatyites or the free staters who are fighting for a divided Ireland of a north and a south, where the south is a dominion of the British Empire and the north is a part of the UK. If you've ever seen a map of Ireland recently, you'd probably guess who won that fight. And the yeah, it uh, I think it's clear who won that one. Yeah, it's fairly clear. Wait, can I ask? Is it okay if I ask a quick question? Yeah, of course. Go ahead. Ask any questions you want. One reason. Thank you. When researching this, did you hear of any niche movements like somebody who was like really pro monarchy but wanted like an Irish monarchy instead of a British instead of an English one? So there were there were like some of those guys, and there's a really fascinating, weird fella um, called uh, Richard Moulton O'Brien who believed himself to be um, the Prince of Thomond and wanted to make his own little independent state in Clare. Um, but yeah, th- there are some of those weird movements, but mainly during the Civil War, they kind of fell apart. You had to pick a side. Hmm. Gotcha. That's so tragic. I was hoping there would be like statelets forming. Unfortunately not. Oh, well. Now, tragic. so you've seen a map, you know which side wins. And the southern states, you know, you can probably guess from the fact that they wanted to be a dominion of the British Empire. These free staters were quite pro-British, but they were also the most conservative and reactionary elements of Irish politics, too. Uh, they dominate the south for quite a while uh, in a political party called Cumann uh, the Association of the Irish. I'll do my best to translate all the names. And We appreciate this, it. No worries. And this southern state is built on two pillars, right? An economic pillar and a social pillar. On the one hand, for the economics, you have the ranchers. They're this uh, land-owning class of cattle ranchers. They own the majority of the land of Ireland, and post-partition, they own the vast majority of the land of the south. And they're important to our story because they're propping up these Cumulangailers. They uh, are very reliant on Britain for trade. They ship their cattle over. And they're going to, you know, prop up again. And on the other hand, 
your social pillar for the Free State is the Catholic Church, who are going to come up again and again and again, because Oliver J. Flanagan loves the Catholic Church. So, so it's sort of, you know, small business tyrants, essentially. Yeah, so... Or is it business, big business tyrants? Uh, oh, it, it's it's more like big business tyrants. They own, like, hundreds of acres okay. of land. Yeah. Uh, that okay. was going to be the question I asked before. Rose uh, asked a similar one. Like, was this, like, kind of, like, a small, like, property class? Or is this, like... Or were these, like, the, like the richest of the rich? These are, yeah, quite rich. Uh, they're a couple mm-hmm. thousand farmers who own anywhere between 50 to more than 200 acres of land each. Oh, so, so this, this is, is not just, like, rich, rich. This is, like, rich, rich, rich. Okay, okay. So rich, this rich, is rich. not a the historically progressive capitalist class. This is no. the bourgeoisie. No. Uh, specifically, the <laughs> Comprador bourgeoisie. Yeah. Are fi- now, my favorite kind, personally. <laughs> <laughs> now, the church uh, are quite important. They are the social pillar. And there's this perception you get that like the church comes to power post-independence. But the church's state power in Ireland is actually a continuation from colonialism, right? Uh, as it turns out, uh, it's very handy to have the church on side as a social control mechanism. So in the 1830s, they were given power over education, the 1860s, power over healthcare, and the free staters continue to empower the church. In what ways? Uh, So they ban divorce, they, uh, you know, they're much more proactive with like Catholic uh, legislation. They Hmm. ban divorce? Yeah, they that wasn't that uncommon in a lot of very Catholic countries. No, not at all. Man, it's the a, 20s were insane. Mm. That's you know, true, yes. Yeah. It was very com- that was pretty common in Catholic countries. Like I think Italy didn't legalize it until the 60s or 70s. I don't what think the Ireland hell? legalized it until 1995. Yeah. 1995? We're going to yeah, we're going to talk about the attempts to legalize divorce. Oh my god. Okay, now I'm getting now I'm even more excited. <laughs> uh, so, basic story about the <laughs> South is that the Free State is an agricultural backwater where where church begins and state ends is absolutely impossible to tell. And to illustrate that, in 1925, Flanagan goes to school for the first time, and he goes to the Mount Melick Convent School. After that, in 1928, he transfers over to the Mount Melick Boys National School which as a national school, you'd think would be run by the government, which it is, but it's also run by the church. Awesome. We, you love like to see no it. There is no line between church and state in Ireland at this point. Exactly. It's it's not a line, it's a blur. Not yeah, even that's... a blur, it's just like, a, it's not even a Venn diagram, it's just a circle, it seems like. <laughs> Basically, so, yeah. So all that like... So all the like anti-Catholic stuff people said about JFK in the '60s is just true about Ireland in the '20s. Absolutely, yes, uh, pretty much. Oh my god, the agents of popery are afoot. <laughs> uh, now, I think it's pap- isn't it papacy? Uh, Probably, the- but popery is more funny to say. Popery is a is a perfectly acceptable word. It's perfectly cromulent. I didn't yeah. realize it was a word at all. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so recollecting when we pivot in... to being like a trad Protestant podcast, you'll see what I mean, Gab. <laughs> uh, 
Recollecting in 1983, he said the following about his time in the Mount Methodic uh, Boys National School. Most of the children attended a bare feet, and few brought any lunch. Books were shared, and one had to pay close attention because we were hammered at the least excuse. What a change today! Hammered what? No teacher can put... Uh, hammered. Uh, hit. Oh, okay. What a change today! No teacher can put a hand on a pupil. No parent will allow it. But it did us good! And we have no regrets, but are grateful to the teachers. I like your Oliver J. Flanagan voice. It's good. Thank you. This is just like talking to anybody like this is like even talking to somebody in America now who's not religious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know this seems barbaric, but uh keep in mind, listener, that I'd say probably a third of America just fully believes this. I wouldn't say a third fully believes it, but like and like most people I've met who are older do not believe, definitely don't believe this, but I definitely met more than one person above the age of, say, 75, 80, who has said something along these lines, but did not go to Catholic school. <laughs> yeah, people who are just like freelance abusers, they're not even doing it in service of anything. Hmm. So I hope that illustrates that Oliver J. Flanagan is a man who has never seen a form of social progress he did not vehemently hate with all of his soul. <laughs> yeah, that checks out. No, unfortunately. Just like us. To... <laughs> Glad to hear. He'd be proud of you. Now, unfortunately, back to a little bit of background, but I'm going to do my best to try and weave Flanagan into the story, right? Uh, I just need to make sure we know okay. who okay. Fianna Fáil are and who Fine Gael are, because he's going to be a member of both of them. That's a good sign. You know when there's a party switch involved, you've got a good guy. <laughs> so uh, the Republicans, as we said, lost the Civil War. And as they were licking their wounds, many of them in prison and then later out of prison and quite a fair amount of them executed, uh, they were trying to figure out what to do next. And in 1926, there's a big dispute over whether or not it's possible to reform the southern state from within. Now, the majority of Sinn Féin, uh, ourselves, the Republican Party, say no. Uh, but the leader of Sinn Féin, Eamon de Valera, the uh, former president of the Irish Republic during the War of Independence, uh, says that they can reform it from within. Uh, he loses the vote, and so he and his supporters sulk, leave the party, and found Fianna Fáil, the Soldiers of Destiny. So just That's be, a crazy cool name. So just to be clear, it seems like the main difference between Sinn Féin and Fianna Fáil is that they're both nationalists, but Sinn Féin is much more militant and also pessimistic in their outlook than Fianna Fáil. Basically, yeah. When you're talking about like the 20s in particular, um, it's, it's more like yeah. revolution versus reform. Hmm, gotcha. So negotiate our uh, freedom from Britain versus fight for it, in, an, mm. in, in other words. Basically, yeah. Yeah. Now, the Fianna Fáil party gets uh, quite popular, and this is quite threatening to Cum and Isle, who have been running unopposed for quite a while now. And uh, uh, I see what awesome you did there. The title, I like it. <laughs> I like it. Uh, Big fan. And uh, in the 1932 election, Cum and Isle run an all-out attack on the rising Fianna Fáil. They accuse them of being secret communists, a front for the IRA, and they even revive a British conspiracy from the War of Independence that Eamon de Valera was secretly Jewish, calling him the Spanish Jew. Was, 
<laughs> his name is neither Spanish nor Jewish. Is De Valera is Spanish? Yeah, De Valera. Uh, is his it not? father was either Cuban, Castilian, or Basque. We're not sure. Oh, it doesn't. I don't know why. It just did not sound. Uh, I guess because it has M in front of it. I just never thought to think of him as Spanish. De Valera yeah, so, totally sounds Spanish. No, because I've never heard it on its own, though. I've only heard it with aim in front of it, so I just never uh, thought yeah. of, like, considering his name as, like, possibly sounding Spanish, if that makes sense. I yeah. love the, like... Like, what's the modern equivalent of calling your political opponent a secret Jew? Uh, saying they're from the George Soros? Yeah, I guess I guess it's still kind of the same thing. It really depends yeah. country by country. Like, I'm certain some pla- sure in some places where, like, the main fear is, like... Uh, Whereas is like gay people, like it's groomer, like I'm sure in like in like Hungary it's just saying that they're backed by George Soros. Yeah. Yeah, um, in Hungary it's actually still just calling them Jewish. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, um the fact that Jewish Phenophile politician Robert Briscoe was poised for a cabinet position post election only confirmed to come on the nail that Phenophile rule was all part of a Judeo Bolshevik plot and it needed to be stopped. Hmm, where have I heard Judeo-Bolshevik plot before? Yeah. Hmm. Not a great term. Now, I didn't know you listened to Jordan Peterson. That's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> now, com- Commissioner of the Guard... Time to prepare uh, for this episode. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. So, Commissioner of the Guard, the Guard, the or the uh, Southern Police Force, uh, General Owen O'Duffy, planned a coup to prevent the new minority Fianna Fáil government from taking power. However, uh, O'Duffy was told no by the Prime Minister W.T. Cosgrave, so he shelved the idea for now. Hmm. I have a feeling he'll come up again later. Maybe he just might. Now, upon taking power, there are two things that immediately Hmm. happen with Fianna Fáil. Firstly, the 31st Eucharistic Congress was hosted in, uh, in Dublin, and the Fianna Fáil government rolled out the red carpet for the Catholic Church. They really wanted to keep them on side. 25% of the Irish population, about 740,000 people at the time, attend a live mass in the Phoenix Park. Wow. 25% that's crazy. of the whole country? That is a lot of people. Oh, yeah. Huge I mean, amounts. Ireland's not that big, but still, that's but crazy. Still 25%? Mm. Yeah, that's... So it's a big event, huge event, and among those attendees okay. is twelve-year-old Oliver J. Flanagan. Twelve-year-old Oliver J. Flanagan. There he is. Does he do something interesting here? Is was he, is he just there? Uh, no. Uh, the only interesting fact about it is that's the first time he left leash. He uh, he actually played a prank on the Pope. He pulled his pants down in front of everyone. <laughs> Little known fact. Yeah, he was actually become the uh, the uh, inspiration for a famous cartoon character now widely regarded uh, now widely known as Bart Simpson. <laughs> sure. <laughs> now the second thing that how do you say eat happened... my shorts in Irish? Oh, uh, Jesus, uh, something like that. Now, okay. Second second thing that uh, immediately happened was that a dispute over debt repayments between Dublin and London erupted into the economic war. Now, that's a tariff war between uh, UK and Ireland. Don't need to know much about it. All you need to know is that British tariffs... I've heard about this from Hearts of Iron. Yeah, it's a thing that happens. 
Uh, it's it's <laughs> it was quite devastating. Uh, British tariffs specifically targeted agricultural exports, harming the bottom line of the ranchers. And who would emerge as the hero of the ranchers to get rid of Fianna Fáil and restore good relations with the UK than Owen O'Duffy at the head of his fascist paramilitary, the Blue Shirts? Ah, I think I recognize him also from Hearts of Iron, which is incredibly embarrassing. (laughs) (laughs) I never thought the people on Reddit who just know all of history from Hearts of Iron were real, but here we are. Yep, that's me. That's me, folks. Yeah, it's Rose. (laughs) I'm not not beating the paradox accusations. Now, uh, in 1930s... Not only you're not beating them, but you spent too much time, like, you spent too much time validating them. Hey, look, for my next series, I'm covering a guy who's not in any Paradox game, okay? (laughs) That's actually not true. I'm I'm actually hiring a guy to make one specifically to embarrass you. (laughs) Yes, another. You're hiring Dutch political simulator. (laughs) Yes, another alternate timeline. Yeah. Now, 1933, the Blue Shirts planned to emulate Mussolini's march on Rome with a march on Dublin a plan that the Devil Era government was absolutely convinced was going to work. In a last-ditch attempt to try and stop the fascist coup, the march was officially banned, and O'Duffy meekly complied and slunk away. Are you serious? And, and that's it. Um, it's surprising that worked, considering that they went through... No the fucking way. Over the government, but then when the, somebody's like, you're not allowed to, he's like, fine, I'll stop. Yeah. In a way... And you're going to get very mad at me for saying this. That's the most British thing ever. <laughs> no, like uh, to be fair, like the blue shirts were massive Anglophiles. So, yeah, that's that's they were emulating the English mindset where you want to do something and you're just politely told no. So you're like, oh well, chaps, we'll get them next time. I feel like that would be more. Stere- I feel like that's a stereotype of Canada rather than England. Yeah, where do you think Canada got it from? Absolutely. No, but I feel like I feel like the stereotype of British people is that uh, that uh, is that they can be like very cold. That's oh, a bit of both. You haven't watched as much like basic cable British here British television as I have. This is what they're like. No, Britain. Espe- I feel like they're a lot- Britain especially has a lot of contradictory contradictory stereotypes about them. We need okay. We need to bring on a British person to to solve this dispute at some point, but we'll do that later. Now, why am I talking about the Blue Shirts? Why is any of this relevant? Well, the Blue Shirts merged with Cumberland in the aftermath of all this and founded a new political party, Fine Gael, the Irish tribe, the second party of Ireland. Now, yes, so that so they were literally are. created out they of a are. merger of a fascist street movement. I yes. never knew that. That is wild. Yeah. They've had like five prime ministers, haven't they? Yeah, the current Taoiseach of Ireland is a Fine Gael Taoiseach. Isn't he gay, too? Yep, Leo Varadkar. And he's mixed race. The yeah. current what of Ireland? Taoiseach. The Taoiseach. Uh, Prime Minister, basically. Prime Minister. Okay, I thought there was a, I thought it was a Labour Party of Ireland guy. Nope. No, it's no. from the Conservative Party. Okay, I might be thinking of someone else then, who is like center left, but also has a powerful position. Crazy that you could go from being like the fascist party to electing a gay guy. Yeah. 
that actually um, that kind of ties into uh, next series where we'll be covering Pim Four Town. <laughs> <laughs> kind of the same vibe. I mean, maybe, look. maybe we'll have to do a series on like on like gay fascists that could be fun i mean like you joke about um about how about parties just going from being fascist parties just being the standard bearer center-right parties but a lot of the parties in central europe after world war ii were just founded by like lower ranking former nazis and nazi sympathizers that's true you also get stuff like jobik in hungary where they're Mm -hmm. like oh yeah we're like turinist and then they just became like europhiles which is so lame. Like, right. Hungarian Turinism is the funniest possible ideology. I know, you just have to keep with it. Why, why would you give up? Exactly. Now, as we said, they are, nowadays, uh, Fine Gael are conservative, but, you know, allow a mixed-race gay guy to be in charge. But when O'Duffy was the leader of Fine Gael and the Blue Shirts were still around as their paramilitary wing... You can probably guess Fine Gael were pretty fascist. So wait, how long did they keep an active paramilitary? Uh, we'll get into that. They'll dissolve in a little bit. Okay. Okay. So so the party would continue to accuse De Valera of being a secret Jew, which he officially denied in 1934. <laughs> awesome. Love that. Yeah. Now, the government that same year planned to ban the blue shirts entirely, and Fine Gael TD John A. Costello, who I promise will not come up again, declared, The black shirts were victorious in Italy, and the Hitler shirts were victorious in Germany, as, assuredly, in spite of this bill, the blue shirts will be victorious in the Irish Free State. So that didn't happen. No, it did not. Because Wait, Hitler shirts? Why didn't they just call why did they just call them the brown shirts? I have no idea. I was now, gonna say, wasn't that their name? Yeah, I, I have no idea. I'm gonna be honest with you. But he did call them the The word Hitler brown shirts. didn't actually enter the English language until nineteen fifty. It's a little known fact. That's yeah. just not true. Yeah, that's no, that's true. a true fact. It is. It is not true. <laughs> Now, uh, as you were saying, that didn't happen, and why is that? Well, the O'Duffy and the Blue Shirts, as it turns out, had actually become a hindrance to the party and its ability to grow. Uh, They were not... It it wasn't very popular when it was led by the fascists, as it turns out. And after a disastrous showing in 1934, O'Duffy was given the boot, and Fine Gael rebranded. They kept their fascism international, like supporting Mussolini's invasion of Ethiopia, but toned down the fascism at home. So the paramilitary wing were just cool with disbanding? Yeah. They didn't like some do them. anything? So some of them did leave with O'Duffy to go fight in Spain, and we'll be catching up with one of those guys in a little bit. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Wait, one thing I have a quick question about is, yeah? um, did the... How, was, how much emphasis did the Blue Shirts and Duffy put on uh, maintaining the influence of the Catholic Church in society, or were they more just focused on basically hating Jewish people and getting rid of free and fair elections? Uh, so they're, they're a bit weird. The blue shirts were just sort of all over the place. Uh, they were 
like some of them were just sort of anti Fianna Fáil, um, and then O'Duffy himself was like really into corporatism, um, and like wanted to like completely uh... reform the Irish governmental system to have like uh, a system where it's represented by companies and stuff. It was so weird. They were just strange bunch. So he wanted like Irish Saibatsus? Yeah. Oh my god. Why is fascism always so boring? I know. It's very boring. It's always like we've got this revolutionary new idea. It's called bringing businesses into the government. No <laughs> one's ever tried it before. Well, most of the people who are really obsessed with businesses, I feel either want to abolish them or just like make them completely independent of anything related to government regulations. So in a way that is unique. Once again, fishhook theory is proven correct. Libertarianism and fascism are basically the same ideology. <laughs> is fishhook theory even a real thing or did he just? No, it was up? a thing a YouTuber made up. I forget who. Meme, yeah. Now, uh, with the depression and the economic war, Fianna Fáil's economic policy was one of stimulating native business with protectionism, but not allowing state ownership. Nationalization is, is bad. We don't like that. The minority Fianna Fáil government even called a snap election in 1933, which it won an outright majority in, entirely because it refused to agree to Labour Party demands to nationalize the South's private railway monopoly, Great Southern Railways, which is the company that Charles uh, Oliver J. Flanagan's father worked for, Charles. Now, so go on. they sort of pulled a Tony Blair in a way. They did, yeah. They sort of successfully pivoted more towards the center, and that helped them. Uh, yeah. I mean, they they just never believed in state ownership in the first place. They they were always kind of a bourgeois party. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, uh, now, okay. So now, the one thing Fianna Fáil was okay with the state being involved in was the building of public housing. And in 1935, Oliver J. Flanagan was impacted by this policy personally, because most of his community moved out of their old, whitewashed, mud-walled cottages to new brick council houses. Do I have to ask you a question about, uh, about the uh, housing thing? Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, thank you. So, because you talked about how uh, a lot of this is the one thing, like the one thing, even like not necessarily socialist policy, but something even approaching like socialism or social democracy that they were supportive of. Was mm -hmm. this partially an anti-British move? Because I know in the 19th century, a lot of the land in Ireland was owned owned by British landlords who were never there. Is that still the case post-independence? It is, yeah. So, like, the free staters are not about uh, depriving the colonial landlord class of their land. They are very happy with them to keep it. Uh, and you get, like, land reform later on. Uh, it will actually come up in our story, more into the 60s and stuff. Um, but this is more just the fact that Ireland is extremely poor, and a lot of people are living in slums. A lot of people, like the Flanagans, are living in mud-walled, whitewashed cabins, so uh, cottages. So it's best to just build some houses. Okay, so this is not really uh, like a greater political statement against a uh, British presence as much as it is just a pragmatic move to make sure that like kids aren't getting disease catching diseases because they're living in dirty mud houses. Yeah, basically, and to keep people voting for you because if you've given them gotcha. a house, they keep voting for you. So at some point, Flanagan became an apprentice carpenter, working on the construction of Portlaoise General Hospital in 1936. He uh, took after his uh, mother's family, but. Flanagan took ill with a chest complaint and needed months to recover. 
The carpenter he apprenticed himself informed him that he was frankly a shit carpenter, and he should probably consider a different line of work. And it was around this time that he got into politics. Oh no. Once again, we see the people who get into politics do it because they can't do anything else. <laughs> That's not all people, but that is like a lot of people, especially on the right. Hmm. Yeah, it's a lot of people who failed at like two or three other jobs. And then we're like, yeah, fuck it. Might as well become a politician. But I've noticed it's more of a right wing thing because I don't hear about many lefties or even like centrists who go into politics because somebody told them you're bad at this other thing. So don't do it. Yeah, maybe. Maybe it's just a right wing thing. Now, speaking of yeah. getting into when politics. this podcast inevitably falls apart, I'm going to become a right wing politician. <laughs> Perfect. Now, Although, speaking... I feel like a lot of the right-wing politicians fail at real jobs. This is not a real job. Carpentry is totally a real job. No, I'm, talk- no, I'm saying podcasting is not a real job. Carpentry very much is a real job. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. Podcasting is not a real job. I enjoy it, but it's not a real job, and I'll be the first to admit it. Yeah. If you would like to make it a real job by sponsoring us, you can email us at runningonopostpod at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs> So Flanagan gets into politics, right? And there's a lot of mythology surrounding him getting into politics because, you know, as I said, he grew up pretty poor. There's a lot of, like, working class boy done good. But uh, we're not going to bother with it because most of that is made up by him. Uh, Let's be frank. uh, He is a massive liar. Now, all we know for certain is that the first organization he was a part of was not overtly political. In 1937, he helped establish the Mount Melick branch of the Pioneers Total Abstinence Association, becoming their secretary. Abstinence from what? Abstinence from alcohol. Oh, not sex? Yeah. Uh, There was a prohibition movement in Ireland? There was, uh, but this was more like personal prohibition. That's crazy. Yeah, so uh, for religious reasons, some Catholics would not drink alcohol, and they were members of the Pioneers. And Flanagan was a religious Catholic, so he did not drink alcohol. And he remained a teetotaler for the entirety of his life. Very similar to Trump in that way. But Catholics are allowed to drink, though, right? There's no prohibition on Catholics drinking, right? No, there there isn't. But just some will say, I'm not going to drink the demon drink, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, okay. This is the uh, this is the 1930s Irish equivalent of of like being a white convert to Islam now. <laughs> yeah, like it, there were like so. Do you think there were? If like, you're going to ask if there were white converts to Islam back then, yes, Rene no, Guinan. No, Rene Guinan, who we will probably cover at some point. That was not my question. Oh, okay. Do you think there were like like versions, not just in Ireland, but like in every country of like the raw meat guy today? But it's like a. But it's like, uh, like some. But it's like a thing. But it's like a. But it's like posters being put up throughout uh various towns in say America or the UK, and it had and they're all titled like um, uh, handsome young lad uh proves a hoax of co- uh disproves hoax of cooked meat in three paragraphs. I think not drinking alcohol is significantly healthier than eating raw meat. I can attest that that is not true. yeah uh little known fact humans actually require alcohol to survive it's so true we do yeah that's why that's why people used to be healthier is because they would drink from a younger age (laughs) (laughs) 
Now, it's also healthy for you. I, I, <laughs> I also have, oh, by the way, speaking of uh, things that are true, I have a new diet coming out. So you guys have heard of the uh, all beef diet, right? Hmm. Yeah, okay. So I have a thing called the owl diet, but it's not where you eat owls. It's where you eat literally like an owl, where it's you have to take the birds in your mouth, eat them raw, and spit out the bones whole. <laughs> I see no problems with this. Yeah. Do you think you could get surgery to make yourself to make your mouth like a beak? Do you think they could <laughs> do that? Like, if you were rich enough, could you get a surgeon to do that for you? Maybe. This yeah. is like a Tariq Nasheed type of figure, but he's like obsessed with the so like something he's termed the owl lifestyle. <laughs> what Tariq Nasheed? I don't know, just somebody who's like really weird. Sorry, now I feel like we need to get Tariq Nasheed on the podcast. Yeah, we'll debate which uh, views are more correct: his views on uh, politics or my views on the owl diet. I feel like I feel like we should get Tariq Nasheed for part two so he can explain that like Irish people are actually black or something. That'd be fun. Doesn't he also hate doesn't he also hate black people outside of America unless they're in Africa? No, he doesn't like he doesn't really like Africans. No, his thing is his thing is American descendants of slavery, ADOS, and that like recent African immigrants are bad because they're not like descended from slaves he's a but, weird guy but what about but i thought he was okay with black people in africa uh i don't know what his specific views on africa itself are i'll have to study the holy texts no i mean okay because i just heard in passing one point that he's okay with black people who live in africa but he's not okay with black but those are the only black people outside of america he's cool with yeah, he's not into, like, people from the Caribbean and stuff. He's a weird guy. We'll probably cover him at some point. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> so uh, you might say that not only is it good for you to uh, not drink alcohol, it's also good for your political career. As Oliver J. Flanagan would later declare that, although you could accuse him of many things, at least you couldn't accuse him of being drunk while he did them, unlike other politicians. Now, was he doing like, oh, Irish people drink all the time? Was he doing that? No, it's it's more like, stop criticizing me. I know everyone else does things far worse than I do. Yeah. yeah. So in 1938, he was a founding member of the Mount Melek Common. Uh, Common is a local branch of Fianna Fáil and was nominated its secretary. Now, as a Fianna Fáil secretary, he developed a tendency for finding hobby horses that he cared deeply about for a few months and then moving on to a new one. And where better to air his strongly held opinions than in letters to the editor? Yes! Oh, no. Yes! Let's go! Was he kind of like H.P. Lovecraft, but in Ireland? In some ways. <laughs> a massive racist? Yes, in that way. What did you say? A massive racist? <laughs> well, not just that, but like, okay, so you know how you said that every like right-wing politician is just somebody who couldn't do, uh, couldn't do like a real job properly? Yeah. Hmm. Other side of that, other uh, possibly competing theory, every politician like prior to like the like prior to like 2005 just did this but because they didn't have internet they would just write letters all the time in their basement yeah okay that would be a cool job just living in your own basement writing letters to the editor all day 
I could do that. You live in your own basement, even though you like you live in a two floor house. <laughs> yeah, no, you no, no, like you're renting a basement from someone else. Well, I thought meant like you live in a two floor house, but for some reason will only live in the basement. <laughs> well, it's easier to work down there. You don't understand. But there's no sunlight. You're not an enlightened basement Chad like myself. <laughs> now, as we'll see from his. <laughs> As we'll see from his uh, letters to the editor, he was not an enlightened basement Chad. He was actually a cringe, unenlightened, uh, above ground cell. <laughs> he was a Top 10 cell. cringiest moments from ground cell, Oliver J. Flanagan, number nine. <laughs> no. Yeah, he was a floor cell. Floor cell. Uh, in some way, this, these opinions were actually fairly standard of a lot of Fianna followers of his era, right? Uh, he supported a ban of members of the Irish Farmers Federation, a farmers union, from joining Fianna Fáil, declaring, We are of the government organisation, and we would be in a far better position to have the farmers' grievances put before proper authorities than the Federation. So there is this like real paternalistic streak in Fianna Fáil. Like, you, you workers... So you Fianna Fáil is the... Fianna Fáil is the, like, center-left party, right? Arguably, yeah. Or did I mix it up? Yeah. Like, <laughs> they're not the party that was Owen O'Daffy. Yes. Yes. They're the other one. Yeah. They're the other one. Okay. Because their names are too similar. They gotta change them. What's the other one? Fianna Gael? Uh, Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil. Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. Okay, those are pretty similar. They are quite similar. Yeah, yeah. they're too similar. Now, like many Fianna Fáilers, and like the Fianna Fáil government, he wanted to support native industry. Specifically, he in one uh, way, he wanted to use stoneware piping built locally for a new drainage scheme. He was so convinced of this oh, that boy. he not only spammed letters to the editor of various newspapers with this opinion, but also spammed them at the government commissioner for the scheme. He spammed yes. so, so many letters at the government commissioner that the government commissioner had to make a public statement telling Flanagan to leave him alone. Wait, <laughs> was it directed to him specifically, or was it just like I'm not take I'm not taking suggestions like generally? He made specific comments about Flanagan, yes, and told him like stop telling me what to do. You were just a baby during the War of Independence while I was fighting in the War of Independence. You know nothing. <laughs> okay, that's Get how you owned, know this guy kid. had an impact. If someone has to, if someone of the government has to give a warning to you specifically, then I'm not saying you're doing something right, but you're definitely not unimpactful, I will say. You're definitely annoying. That is definitely a like, that is definitely, if you're that level of annoying, you're destined for history. <laughs> not necessarily greatness, but to make history somehow. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So I'm gonna now tell you some other opinions of his, uh, and I'm gonna ask you. Yeah, uh, what they you say think. they say well-behaved women rarely make history. So, <laughs> well-behaved people in general, I feel like barely make history. That was the riff I was going with. Yes, yeah, Gib. Mm. So uh, here are some opinions. I'll, I'll ask you guys what you think of them. He believed in paying turf cutters a bonus to cut more turf to fill wartime shortages, rather than compelling them to. So the government policy Wait, was to compel paying, paying people. Yeah, you a, a radical idea. Rather than the government telling people they should do things, you should pay them more money. That just sounds like having. I a think job. I support that. Yeah. Yeah, that doesn't seem. So is, bad, is there going to be some twist where, like, 
where like the extra money comes from like a new tax on Protestants and Jews or something. Uh, Is that going to be the twist? Maybe you figured out where we're going. So his next opinion I'll ask you about (laughs) is a bicycle license that you'd have to pay a monthly fee to keep up to date. Sure, why not? I support that now. Yeah, you have to have a a license. No, I don't either. (laughs) That's such a like, that's like what people make fun of Britain for. I hate to keep comparing Ireland to Britain, but that is such British mindset from Flanagan (laughs) of like... Oi, you got a license for that bicycle, mate. This is actually a question. It's so dumb. Are licenses a thing in Ireland and other European countries, or is it only England? Because I know you need a TV license in in England. So there's TV licenses here, which is an import, but it's it's not actually a license, right? It's basically it's called a license because if you called it the TV tax, people wouldn't like it. Mm. Yeah, it's basically just a tax to fund the state broadcaster. Yeah. Okay, but do, does England in England is it like a real license to watch TV, or is it just like a tax to fund the bro, to fund the BBC? It's yeah, just same, a tax to fund the BBC. They don't tax, send yeah. you a license. Oh, I thought it was like a I thought it was like a driver's license, but for watching television. <laughs> you thought like the police could break into your home and be like, no, "Show me your TV license." No, but I thought having like cable was more than just like paying for like a subscription. I thought it was more of like. No, like you need like a government issued license to watch television at your No, it's basically your house. a it's basically a forced subscription to the BBC. Yeah. Oh, okay. So it's just a tax everyone pays. Yeah, no, yeah. they don't send you a little license that says, you know, your name here is, was born on this date and is allowed to watch TV between the except for between the hours of 7 to 5 a.m. Just when I thought the Tories were cool, then I found out that they didn't even enact a real TV license. <laughs> That's I'm going to run for UK Prime Minister on that platform. We need Make to, it a real license? Yeah, we need TV to have a real license. And bicycles. Let's just have licenses for literally everything. Yeah. Okay. We need to be bureaucracy maxing. And Do you I know what else we should have? We can solve politics. Oh, no. Oh, no. We what else should we have, Thomas? Have... We have TV licenses, like real licenses, but four-year-olds can drive. They can't reach the pedals, so they can't drive anyway. No, my point is point. You, get, you bring in one license, you get rid of another. So it's still like a status quo. It's still equilibrium, you know? Is that like that like libertarian thing where in order to implement a new regulation, you have to get rid of one? <laughs> yes, but this, is, but this will work. <laughs> I don't think it would. <laughs> Name one thing about not needing a driver's license that would go that would go badly. Do you know how many people are killed in dry, by cars each year? Because it's a lot. <laughs> it's far too many. We're getting real here. Uh, for yeah, no, that's so. Yeah, so um, Oliver J. Flanagan was like, you know, not enough people are killed by cars. We need fewer bicycles. Exactly. We need a bicycle license, and we also need women should be barred from working as they're taking jobs from men. Wait, actually? Yeah. They took our jobs! Was that wow, a that's... position to have amongst Irish, uh, among the Irish conservative parties, though, in like the 1930s? Not uncommon, no. There was like a, a sort of a semi-official marriage bar until like the 70s. Of like what, mar- women couldn't work? 
Yeah, if you got married as a woman, uh, for especially public sector jobs, you would sort of be expected to go home and look after the kids. Okay, so it was never like officially written in text, but like employers would very much go out of their way not to hire you if you were a married woman. Yeah, from my understanding. Although I, it may that was pretty common policy. in the U.S. for quite a while too. Yeah, that was pretty common in the U.S. for quite a while too. It wasn't mm. uncommon for single women to work, but for married women to work was quite rare. Yeah, yeah, but even then, it, a lot of the single women had like secretarial roles. Like they were not high; they were not very high powered. Yeah, but they were still, like, working. Also, a lot of them worked in, like, garment factories and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, also, I looked it up, and apparently women did have the right to vote in Ireland at this point. Yeah, uh, we actually... Uh, we, uh, women had the right to vote uh, in 1921, uh, and then in Britain it wouldn't be till 1928 uh, that all women had the right to vote. In France, I don't think it was until after World War II. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think that's right. And then in Switzerland, it was until the 70s. So what else does Michael... So so what are Michael or Oliver's Oliver. opinions on... Yeah, for some reason, I thought his name was Michael. His um, name, it's actually pronounced Olivier. <laughs> yeah, it's Olivier uh, <laughs> James Flanagan. Yeah. <laughs> so... Is it Oliver's opinions on women? What are they aside from uh, they should not be able to work? Oh, we are going to get. Does that so not weird. tell you enough? We're but going like, to... does he have any other weird opinions? Oh, don't worry. We're going to talk so much about his opinions on women. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh boy. So much <laughs> about the various horrible <laughs> yeah. things he said about women. Uh, the final yeah. thing uh, in our list of things that I'd like you to react to is a reduction of beer tax. Oh, that's good. Yeah. No, it's that's not. not Why is it not good? Because <laughs> you need taxes to fund things. Yeah, but I feel like a beer tax isn't a good tax because think about it. Let's say that everyone spends the same amount on beer, right? Who do you think it's going to affect more? Yeah, but you shouldn't be encouraging drinking. But no, maybe... but I feel like there, if you want to fund things, there are better things to tax other than like other than beer. Because I feel like do you sales think Oliver J. Flanagan was? Well, do you yeah, think you Oliver say... J. Flanagan was in favor of those taxes? Well, well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. You say that, Gabe, and on this issue, right? He believed in this for two reasons. On the first, it was to help native business, as Mount Melick was the home of a malting industry. But Flanagan also firmly oh, okay, believed. Oh, okay, that makes sense. He also firmly believed that, quote, when the government needs revenue, they should seek channels of taxation with the least effect on the working class. To Flanagan. Whoa, beer hold was... up. Yeah. Are we hold maybe up. Agree... Are we yeah. about to agree with him? That's what I told you, Rose. That's Do we have to hand you. it to him? Do we have to hand it to him? Now, to Flanagan, beer was an essential, and the tax on it hurt working class people the hardest. <laughs> Instead, there should be a tax on luxury items like cosmetics and imported spirits, as it's only fair that those who have more money pay more tax. So, are we agreeing those with Those who have more money should what? Uh, pay more tax. Yeah, I on, think... Uh, on the yeah. last one, yes. On the thing about the bicycles, probably not. Um, with the thing on women, definitely not. Yeah, so it seems like his first and fourth policies are decent, and then the other two are sort of very bad. Yeah. 
So we're maybe agreeing with Oliver J. Flanagan a little bit, but don't worry. World War II has just broken out. We're not going to agree with him for long. Oh, yeah. Also, real quick, did he fight for the Repu- for the uh, fascists in Spain? Uh, he did not, but a someone who did is going to come up. Okay, awesome. Well, not awesome, actually. No. Uh, very not. bad. <laughs> so Ireland remains neutral in World War II, right? And the local defense forces yeah. were set up to defend Ireland in case of invasion, and Flanagan got drafted. At the firing range for training, the LDF often had faces on the targets. According to later testimony from fellow members, Flanagan reveled in firing at Churchill and King George VI, but when ordered to fire at a target with Hitler's portrait, he refused. Oh. What? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. He was kicked out of the LDF not long after that. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Now, to be fair. What what were the like ex? Go on. What were the like ex black shirts doing? Was like Owen O'Duffy super pro Hitler? Uh, O'Duffy was quite pro Hitler. Yeah. Okay. So it wasn't like illegal to be pro Hitler the way it was in Britain. No, uh, you you did have like sort of like that's sort of the thing with neutrality in Ireland is that there were a lot of ally sympathizers and uh, quite a few Axis sympathizers and also most people didn't care. So the government basically said, we're not getting involved because if we do get involved, the ally supporters and the Axis supporters are going to fight each other in a civil war, probably. Yeah, that makes sense. Was a lot of the uh, reluctant, uh, was a lot of their support for neutrality, did a lot of that come from a genuine desire to avoid war or was a lot of it um being was a lot of it kind of like world war one where they sympathized with germany because they did not like the british so uh it it was on some level a real desire to just not be involved because you know we talked about the depression the economic war ireland was broke ireland was not doing well uh it, it did not have the capacity to fight a war and on the other end it's less like a sympathy for germany and more so not liking anyone not liking the Brits because they've just been involved in the economic war and also like not that long ago, you know, you had the Black and Tans and the War of Independence and torture and all sorts of other stuff. So not fans of them, but also not fans of the Nazis. So we'll stick out of this one. Unless you're Oliver J. Flanagan. No. In Oliver which J. case, Flanagan. you might be yeah. a bit of a fan of the Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I feel like he definitely took a side in this one. He did. Although, to be fair, he would later deny these claims, declaring that he was never a member of the LDF. When it became obvious that he was a member of the LDF, he changed his story, arguing that he didn't fire on a portrait of Hitler, not because he supported Hitler, but because he was just that committed to neutrality that he would never fire on one of the combatants. (laughs) But didn't he fire upon the other two? Yeah, that's a massive hole in the story. Yes, yes, he did. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, like, I was going to say, his apology doesn't mean shit. It's, it's not, not an apology, apology either. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's a, a just denial. A denial. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that yeah. Denial. Yeah, I'm mixing up terms here. Mm. Yeah. Now, in January 1941, Flanagan wrote another letter to the editor because he had found a new hobby horse. He articulated Was it anti-Semitism? Gro- we'll see. He articulated a <laughs> growing... That was an frust- ominous pause. Mm. He articulated a growing frustration and disillusionment of Irish people with Fianna Fáil. A real growing frustration and disillusionment. 
They'd been promised prosperity, and yet Ireland was still incredibly poor. What made Flanagan stand out, though, was why he thought this was happening. A, quote, shortage of money. Uh, A big uh, quote here. Quote, While we hear of the ordinary labourer and working farmer being warned of the dangers of communism, we never hear of them being told of the causes of communism. They were never told why there is a shortage of money. Why not strike at this root of communism? There is in existence today an organisation which has a programme which will deal fully with this vital matter, and every true Christian Irishman should give every possible support to this godly and Christian programme. Read the plain truths about money, published by the Irish National Monetary Reform Association. You know an organization with that name has to be so fascist. Wait, Irish National Monetary Reform Association? Yep. Yeah, you know a group called that is like openly pro-Holocaust. So, you might be wondering, what's monetary reform, and who are the Irish Monetary Reform Association? Uh, The Irish Monetary Reform Association. I've already decided they're pro-Hitler. Hmm, we'll see. Now, monetary reform was the Irish term for social credit economics. Oh my god, it's even weirder! Yes! (laughs) Do you know what social credit (laughs) economics is? Uh, I, I, I just heard social credit and I just thought, no, God, no. No, it's so much weirder than what you're thinking. Yeah. Oh God, what is it? So we don't need to get too in-depth into the theory, but to sum it up real quick and dirty, it's the 1930s version of universal basic income. With, uh, added elements. Oh, that's not that weird. Oh, don't worry. There's added elements to this ideology, which we will be discussing in depth when we talk about who the IMRA were. So, to understand who the Irish Monetary Reform Association are, I'm going to quote from a speech by theirs, given by their leader, Seamus Lennon, uh, spelt like John Lennon, not like Vladimir Lennon, uh, at Portlaoise. Oh, that's so tragic. Unfortunately, yeah, the uncool Lennon. Uh, and yeah. he... Says, John Lennon, the filthy revisionist. <laughs> so, Seamus John Lennon... John Lennon, the what? John Lennon, the filthy revisionist. So Seamus Lennon would give the speech at Port Leash, and I'm also going to quote from the association's constitution. Lennon argued that Ireland's problems were being caused by money being hoarded in the hands of the few, and that this was the case because the bankers are the de jure and de facto government of the country. Now, this isn't the case just in Ireland, of course, as wealth inequality is part of an international plot to bring about communism, as we all know. Yep. Communists are fit. Communists are famous for their love of the international banking system. Yes. Anytime I talk to a communist, they cannot stop telling me about how great the International Monetary Fund is. They love it so much. And like the World tra- and like the World Trade Organization, they just love it. It's their favorite shit we, ever. Who, I wonder who we thought these bankers were. Ooh, yes, I wonder who. Now, they argued the following in their constitution. Money in the hands of the few is the weapon used by these few, international financiers, the bankers, to destroy and impoverish the multitudes, create extreme individualism, class hatred, civil wars, world wards, because they spelt it wrong, and world revolution. And finally, <laughs> Wait, communism. Wait, war with a D? Yeah, they spelt it wrong in their own constitution. Wait, hold on. Maybe these international bankers are cool. Hold up. <laughs> 
Uh, so they wanted to critical create... support for the. They want to create communism. Critical support for the international bankers. Thus destroying Christianity and all national boundaries in its onward march. Yeah, again, critical support for the international bankers. Not so bad. Now, you've asked the question, Gabe, who are the international financiers and the bankers? That's a very good question. And just in case you're not quite getting what the IMRA are, uh, you know, not picking up what they're putting down, don't worry. Because Seamus Lennon has you covered. He argues that fundamental systemic change is necessary to end the deadly trail of Jew Masonic money controllers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. saw that one coming. What? Wait, Jews? Wait, Jew Masonic money controllers? This guy sounds like he's really pulling an Erdogan. Mm. Did yeah, he the... play by any chance when he was in college? <laughs> I don't believe yeah. so. Yeah. Now this yeah, new um, system, man. The 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 Mason thing is so weird, man. I never got it. Yeah, I, yeah, I I don't get it either. But it, it keeps coming up. Like with they're the so IRA. irrelevant. They love talking about the Masons. Of course it does, because like anti-Masonism is such a key thing. Mm. Now this new system that would get rid of the Jew Masonic money controllers wouldn't need political freedom because in its constitution it's heavily implied that political freedom is a plot by the Jews. Wait, what? Hang on, base Jews? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, in the political freedom, I feel like it's accusing like a group you don't like of giving you political freedom is not a good way to turn like your followers against that group. Basically, they argue. Political freedom is bad because the Jews invented it. Yeah, I'm gonna st- I'm gonna start I'm gonna adopt this ideology, but like from a philo-Semitic perspective, <laughs> I'm gonna be like, yeah, this ideology is cool because it's the actually- Jews are cool and did all this good stuff. <laughs> it's actually true. That I'm doing like for, those, for the listeners who it's don't good. know, Rose and I are both Jewish. Hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm doing but I'm doing like Jay Z style anti-Semitism, where you're like, yeah, the Jews are rich and that's good. Oh, so like the Japanese Empire. Wait, did he actually say that? Yeah, like the Japanese Empire. Uh, no, um, Jay-Z has a line where he's like, why do you think the Jews own all the property? Credit. <laughs> <laughs> but he means it in like a positive way. Like what He's he like, they own all the... Them. They worked their way up. Yeah, exactly. He's like, it, he's like, they did it because they're smart and we should try to emulate them because they're successful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Anti-Semitism uh, is so weird. It is. So I'm going to ask you guys now, do these guys sound like Nazis to you? Little bit. Little bit, maybe? Just a tad. (laughs) Well, Seamus Lennon assures you that although many people are comparing them to the Nazis, they swear they aren't. So you should try my not a Nazi T-shirt is asking a lot of (laughs) is asking a lot of questions that are already answered by my T-shirt. Now. Oliver J. Flanagan would be made secretary of the IMRA's leash branch in early 1941. And a few months later, Flanagan was expelled from Fianna Fáil. Wait, can we try to guess why? Yeah, go ahead. I'm going to guess he... um, I'm going to guess he said something about women. I'm going to guess that he uh, said something bad about the Catholic Church, not like in regards to its teachings on abortion or uh, drinking, but because he was mad that they didn't re-elect, like, they 
on the base, but he didn't like the Catholic Church because they were against dogfighting. That's my guess. What is it with you and dogfighting? This like, comes so up this every is episode. Common thing of like weird of like weird guys like getting mad because like they don't allow like some like archaic brutal practice <laughs> that like no one supports. Is dogfighting legal anywhere? I don't think it's so. legal in some places. I think where? Let me look this up. Legal. Now to answer your question, uh, this was almost definitely for his membership in the IMRA. But Flanagan claimed that he was expelled for attempting to expose corruption. So who knows? Did he accuse anyone or did he just uh, just say corruption? Yeah, he just said corruption. Mm-hmm. So keeping it very vague. So probably does not have uh, much evidence to support his claims. I, I don't think so. Now, the Mount Malik Common, uh, the local branch yeah. of Fianna Fáil, yeah. that he was the secretary of, uh, would side with their secretary and left the party with him. Flanagan would be forever bitter about his expulsion from Fianna Fáil, and from here on out was going to do everything in his power to undermine them. Of Irish politicians... So this is sort of his ideological shift, and yes. is less motivated by some kind of ideological 180 and more motivated by personal stuff. He's a, such a spiteful man. Yeah, he is that checks the most out. spiteful man. I mean, like, so I'm a, always that... interested whenever someone has like a big political shift in their political career, like ideologically, what their reason for it is. So in this case, it was purely personal. Yes. I feel like okay. this is a surprisingly common theme in politics. Though, like a lot of events in world history happen because somebody was like mean to your mom, so they just decide to like blow up the world as revenge. Also, Gabe, I found out dogfighting is legal in China, Morocco, uh, Western Sahara, and Afghanistan and Albania. Really? Yes. Huh. So, um, if you want to go to any of those countries. <laughs> You can do a dogfight. I don't want to engage in dogfighting, but... It's also legal in parts of Russia and Japan, but not all of it. I was going to say, I think Russia... Well, I I assume Russia, like... I don't know, like, I feel like... I I don't know how, like, corrupt the police are in Russia, but... Yeah. (laughs) Maybe um, our next episode will be an expose on the Chinese dogfighting industry. Would anyone listen to that? I mean, I feel like that's what Vice News is for. Yeah, okay. I'll pitch it to Vice. (laughs) Sorry, off topic. No worries. Now, of Irish politicians, he declared that 90% of them have not one drop of Irish blood in their veins. And of Fianna Fáil in particular, he declared that they were in cahoots with Leslie Hoare-Belisha, a prominent Jewish-UK politician. Basically, the George Soros of his era. The George Soros of his era is such a cool phrase. What do I mean? Just like a random Jew, just like a rich Jewish guy that everyone uh, just like accuses of like of just like being like the she- the power behind the curtains. Basically, yeah. Now he became the secretary of the IMRA itself later that year and was put forward as a candidate for the upcoming local elections in 1942. So the IMRA in these elections, oh. The IMRA had two problems during the election. Firstly, they didn't have much money, and secondly, voters didn't know what the hell they were talking about. That's unfortunate. 
Yeah, Lenin's gibberish didn't really make much sense to most voters. But Flanagan in these circumstances proved an adept campaigner, cycling round the three counties the IMRA had candidates in, giving speeches that boiled down the confusing monetary reform agenda to simple points. Higher wages, more jobs, and of course, heinous anti-Semitism. So wait, he did it on a bicycle? Yeah. He cycled But everywhere. he wanted to introduce a tax for bicycles. He's not opposed to bicycle riding. He just wants government. He just wants you to pay the government for riding a bicycle. Exactly. Oh my god, that that absolute bastard! Seem like he's against riding bicycles. Oh, but you should have to pay a tax to use your bicycle. Shut the fuck! Oh my god, (laughs) this man is infuriating. It's like paying a tax to like. It's like paying. It's like paying like a tax. It's like paying tolls. Like you're not opposed to driving. You just want like someone to pay a tax to like go through this bridge. Yeah, yeah, okay. Get our, this is the pro bicycle tax podcast. One hundred percent. Where we cover extremely local issues in our municipalities, and that's one of them. And speaking of very local issues, uh, in his own very small constituency of Tinnahinch, Flanagan was already fairly well known. Uh, this is partially because he was involved in a lot of local organizations like the Pioneers, the GAA, Mwichinatire, uh, a lot of others. Uh, he was also a local Fianna Faller before that, and also just because he was very annoying, so you kind of had to know who he was. Yeah, he's sort of, you know, the town idiot. Hmm. Now, let's imagine a local didn't know who he was, which was possible. He would make sure they did because he would cycle round in a hinge with two sandwich boards on his bike. The front said, here comes Oliver J," And the back said, there goes Flanagan. That's actually pretty clever. I'll give him credit for that. That's going to be a staple in the election. <laughs> here comes Oliver J. Yeah. So he just did that? That was just like his whole thing? Yeah. That I mean, was not his whole thing, but he would just yeah. ride around on a bicycle. Yeah, Here comes stick, Oliver J. There goes Flanagan. Yeah. I mean, he didn't have to cover a lot of land, so that is a pretty good strategy. I'd say just ride your bicycle with like a massive sign saying who you are. It is very local. Yeah, but it doesn't say anything about you. No. Yeah, I no, guess if everyone already knows out there, especially like if you just want like people to like know who you are. Yeah, I guess. I, All right. I guess yeah, so. this that seems like not the worst idea. Huh. I guess we'll, we'll have to see how he does in the works. election, huh? Yeah, we'll have to see. So, to gain a place in the five... His party gets a majority. Uh, So, to gain a place in the five-seat constituency of Tinnahinch, the quota was 617 first preference votes. Flanagan received 1,284. Double the quota. So, double, yeah. That's crazy. He did very well. Extremely well. And for the cash-trapped So, people from that area just... They loved him. (laughs) <laughs> so he sort of took over this organization just by being a force of personality that they couldn't be. Genuinely, yeah. For the cash-strapped IMRA... And not even a likable this... personality. Yeah, not really, to be <laughs> honest. Which makes this... it even more impressive. <laughs> this adept campaigner, Flanagan, and the fact that he was their top vote-getter made him the clear choice to contest the 1943 general elections as their sole candidate. Oh my. That seems like a bad strategy, only having one. So, 
He's now contesting the 1943 general election as their sole candidate, and during this election, he loved hanging around various other far-right freaks. It was his favourite thing to do. One of his main campaigners was a man by the name of Kevin Cahill, a blue shirt who'd volunteered for Franco in the Spanish Civil War. Kevin what? Cahill. Cahill, okay. G2, the Irish Intelligence Service, noted in a report on Flanagan that Reverend Morris O'Connor, founder of the Irish Friends of Germany, was probably, in some measure, responsible for Flanagan's election manifesto. He was also clearly an admirer of, and in contact with, Father Dennis Fahey, a leading theologian and anti-Semite, which, I mean, you're a Catholic theologian, of course you're an anti-Semite. He wrote in his Yeah, pamphlet, I mean, come on, that's part and parcel. Yeah. Oh, that's just obvious, yeah. He wrote in his pamphlet, The Rulers of Russia, that communism was but the most recent development of the age-long struggle waged by the Jewish nation against the supernatural Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, and his mystical body, the Catholic Church. <laughs> well. So this is like, this is a very, this is interesting because like, it's distinct from Nazi anti-Semitism in that it's much more religious. It's so Catholic. Whereas Nazi anti-Semitism was much more like racial. Mm, yeah. And economic. This is purely like Jews. This is like Jews spiritual. This is like mm. the Jews are spiritually bad. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Which I feel now, like was kind of run of the mill like in a lot of places. Yeah, the only person who did this post-war was like Julius Avola. Mm. Like this is not a kind of anti-Semitism you really see that much in the West uh, anymore. Yeah, not anymore. But uh, 1930s Ireland, it was around. <laughs> yeah, you don't clearly. See as much, but it's definitely still like present. Like plenty of people do not like Jews for like religious reasons, as opposed to just like racial reasons or economic reasons. Yeah, yeah, it still exists. It's just less dominant. Yeah, no, it's not the prevalent form in politics. It's not the prevalent manifestation of anti-Semitism that you see in politics, but it's definitely still around. It has not disappeared. Yeah. It's just less active in politics, I would say. We know that he was friends with this man who said those very strange things because he wrote a letter to him during the election. Uh, the letter goes as follows. Just a line letting you know, we are going ahead with the election campaign in Lee Shoffley against the Jew Masonic system. The people are coming to us, but it's hard to get the people to understand how they are held down by the Jews and Masons who control their very lives. I did as you told me, placed my trust in our blessed lady, and I am sure I will get a good vote here. I like that for Flanagan, you do like Irish country pumpkin voice. He he is a country pumpkin, basically, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just think it's fun. <laughs> Now, during the campaign, he didn't also hang out with far-right uh, figures. He also hung around in courts because he was sent to court twice. Look, who among us hasn't gone to court for a couple drunk driving charges one time back in, not, back in the 40s, you know? <laughs> okay, this proves the theory that I've heard so many that you've said before and that I've heard others say, which is, you go into politics as a far right guy because you can't do like you can't do well at any other real job. Yeah. Also, wait, was it family court? I need to know if it was family court. It wasn't. Divorce was his... not allowed. Remember? Yeah. 
He wasn't, but his family, oh, that's a fair was, yeah, so his was, family no was involved in the court case. Because on the first count, the Flanagan yeah. family was brought before the court for committing ration book fraud. For possessing four ration books, <laughs> despite being only supposed to get one. <laughs> I was just saying, wait, they had, wait, how do you get four ration books? They, Presumably uh, they stole them or made them. So uh, the the actual scheme was that the the father and the younger brother of Flanagan were registered to two different households, and then both of them applied for ration books in both of the households. Hmm, I'm not gonna lie, I was gonna assume it was like a weird type of fraud. Fraud's or, generally uh, pretty weird. No, but like I thought it was gonna be like an e or like. Like, or not even a weird type of fraud. I thought it was going to be an equal, like a weird, another weird type of fraud. Like, I thought it was going to be like, they like tried to open a pet shop, but like, instead of like selling dogs, it was like cats dressed up in dog costumes or something to like save money. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe this is when dog fighting enters the picture. Now, the fraud got discovered because Oliver J. Flanagan accidentally brought two of the books with him to a shop. He took more than one with him. Yes. Wait, what? So he just totally blew their cover. He brought the books with him. Wait, I lost the story a bit. Oh, okay. So you're saying his brother and father had a good scam going, and Oliver ruined it by being an idiot. Yeah. This is going to come up a lot. <laughs> he ruins was Oliver being charged scams. with ration book fraud, or was he testifying against his, or was he testifying against his family? All no, he was in, he was on trial with them. All, I think. all the time ah. said. on trial. So, oh my, ration book fraud is such a cool crime to commit. It is. But, yeah, uh, that might be my favorite crime that someone's committed on this podcast so far. <laughs> and oh, mind I'm you, we did an episode on Jim Trafficant. <laughs> Actually, no, the Trafficant fraud is still my favorite. Taking bribes from two competing mafia families and then saying you did it as a sting operation that you told no one about is unbeatable. That is actually very good. Europe could never. Europe could never. I could think of is saying that it would actually like that you uh, taking money from the mob is actually reducing crime because like there that means that that's money they can't spend on bribing other people. So you're really sacrificing yourself to save others. Well, the best part is that he never returned the money. So his congressional wages were garnished to pay it. <laughs> I mean, fair. Yeah. So as I said, I'm assuming the mob does not come up in this story. Uh, unfortunately, not. No. Tragic. Very tragic. Yeah. Uh, but Did, does Ireland have like a mafia, or is it just Irish Americans? There are. Yeah. There, but like, we wouldn't call them the the mafia, but there are like gangs. Yeah, they exist. Yeah, I was gonna okay. say, I feel like there's organized crime of some sort in every country. Hmm. Yeah, probably. So Flanagan's in court, right? Uh, on the first count for the for the ration book fraud, but on the other count, he's on he's hauled before the court for violating Ireland's wartime emergency power laws. He was accused of breaching the peace for the following speech he gave in Mount Rath. Bit of a uh, little oh, long, little long, but I'm gonna. Pause every now and again and ask you guys what you think, then we'll move on to the next one. Is that all right? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. So, the people should get ready to fight the bank managers, who are the curse of the country. 
and if ever the banks try to evict anyone, you should let me know at once, and I will be present at the eviction, and we can tell the people to be there also, so that we can protest and meet the guards and the bailiffs with the iron sprong. If you do that, you won't see the bailiffs again. I'd be less opposed if by bankers he did not mean Jews. Yeah. Yeah, on the surface, that sounds pretty good. He's talking about, you know, stopping evictions. That seems good. Yeah. I'm assuming it doesn't stay that way. Maybe it doesn't, because he declares, I don't blame the guards or the bailiff. You know, they are paid to do the dirty work for the Jews and Masons. <laughs> there we go. Oh, wow. That was more on the nose than I was expecting. I thought he would just be like, I thought he'd just say like those people or like the or like a peculiar type of like person or something, you know, like something that's like saying it with not actually saying it. Flanagan is a very explicit. You person. could still be openly anti-Semitic in the forties. No, but you like can. still like, I, I, but even then, like some people would just like talk like in more vague terms. Yeah, but it was, there was no reason to back then. No, you're right. But I just figured like, even then, like a lot of people still did. Like, I don't know. Yeah, we'll see. But yeah, yeah I, um, <laughs> Yeah, this is on. always what happens where they it sounds good and then they're like oh actually it's the Jews. Yeah. And he tells you, I am telling you to resist the bank manager, to pay no rates, to pay no rent. In fact, to pay nothing at all until such time as we have got money of our own. So don't pay your taxes. So wait, and rent don't strike? Pay rent. Yeah, rent strike. Yeah, okay, hold up. So we're going if from, only it wasn't anti-Semitic. So we're going from good to bad to good. Who's ready for bad? Me? Well, I, my favorite part is that like somehow the police are innocent. Yeah, the, the, he's like, the, oh yeah, the police are enforcers of this brutal regime. <laughs> but don't worry, they're still good. They're only following. Orders. <laughs> like he's he's such <laughs> he's such a fascist that he can't even bring himself. To oppose the police, <laughs> even though he thinks the police are Jewish well, controlled. Thinking as that, like the guys who are part of the police are being roped into it by the Jews, who are in his mind the real bad guys. Yeah, exactly. So, like criticizing the police would just be a distraction in his mind from criticizing the real evil people, the Jews. The Jews, mm. yeah, okay. And of making money, he says the following: Money was made by the Germans, and they have no gold. I am not here to vindicate Hitler's policy. I do not agree with him on everything. <laughs> but I agree with I agree with 99.5% of his policy. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Regarding my previous... It's like the drill tweet about ISIS. <laughs> Regarding my previous tweet about the terror group ISIS, you do not in fact have to hand it to him. Ninety-nine and a half percent. The half percent that he, he disagreed with. Yes, genuinely. Yeah. Uh, oh, oh sorry. Say, what it was? Say? No, no. Uh, but he he was really specific about ninety-nine and a half percent. He didn't like he didn't like Herman Goring for some reason. <laughs> he he really disliked the way they were conducting their aerial campaigns. That was it. That was all he had a problem with. Oh, I was gonna guess it was like some weird economic policy that like no one uh He disagreed with the Pact of Steel. <laughs> hmm. And so we've gone to bad. Let's go back to So good. I'm gonna go with the Irish people I'm gonna go with the Irish people resoundingly reject the guy who openly says Hitler is good. Ooh, we'll find out. 
he declares finally, There were men arrested for robbing banks. And I hope I am not talking against the laws of the state when I say if I was in power, I would give every man that robbed a bank a medal and a pension, as they have as good a right to the money as anyone else. So, rob banks. So, yeah, so he's pro-crime, but also pro-police. That's cool. He just wants everyone to get along, except the Jews. Not the Jews, no. Well, I mean, pro-crime and pro-police makes sense in very weird like if you're this guy if you like have this guy's brain you're probably like okay uh if we have more crimes then we'll need to hire more police officers so that'll stimulate the economy (laughs) i'm backing the blue by just breaking windows and random apartments (laughs) with rocks (laughs) that's that's how i back the blue (laughs) so he says there at the end uh you know i hope i'm not talking against the laws of the state He, he was which is why he ends up in court and he defends yeah. <laughs> his speech to the hilt, declaring, and he tries to use the court as a platform to further campaign for the IMRA. He tried to give a speech, but was slapped down by the judge, who immediately declared, no, 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 when he tried. <laughs> when he tried to what? To campaign? Yeah, when he tried to give another speech, he was like, let me, uh, I believe, uh, he was, so like a guard was recalling the speech, and he's like, the speech wasn't uh, correctly recalled, let me give the speech now, and the judge said, no, 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 stop. (laughs) He would extol the virtues of the IMRA, declaring, it teaches that God made the world for man's use and benefit, not for the Rothschilds and Jews and the Montague Normans. The what? What, was the what is a Montague Norman? Montague like Norman, the Norman was... invasion of England. Uh, he was the governor of the Bank of England. Oh, that's cool. Was he Jewish? Uh, I don't believe he was, but he heavily featured in anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Yeah, yeah, that's not shocking. He's sort of an honorary Jew. Well, I don't uh, think that's how that works. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's a bank manager, so as far as these guys... I wish we could posthumously baptize people. Yeah, to them, that's the same thing. Banker and Jewish guy? Yeah. Yeah. Like, even if you weren't Jewish, they're like, oh, you're spiritually Jewish. Mm-hmm. Flanagan finally ended this all. Spiritually <laughs> Jewish is going to be the name of my debut gospel album. <laughs> Flanagan finally ended this all by declaring that he was willing to die for his beliefs. He then said he was very sorry and he wouldn't do it again. (laughs) And unfortunately, no one took him up on that. Yeah, nobody did. He's dead, right? He is dead now, yeah. He was born in 1920, I assume so. Just making sure me saying it's bad, no one killed him, won't get me in legal trouble. (laughs) Although, what if his estate sues you? That's protected speech. He's dead, I can say it. Instead of somebody killing him, he received a slap on the wrist fine and was thereafter monitored closely by G2. So, now the election. In the 5C constituency of... So now he's a dissident against the state. He is, yeah. He's being monitored by the government now, yeah. In the Shafali, there were five seats. And, and what Flan- happens next? He f- managed to eke out the final seat, just barely. His campaigning vigor certainly helped him, but more than anything, Flanagan was just riding a wave of discontent in 1943. 
The electorate weren't happy with Fianna Fáil, and they weren't willing to vote for Fine Gael. So they switched to Labour, Clonna Talun, who were the family of the land, a social democratic small farmers party, and various outsider populists like Flanagan. And so now, in 1943, at 23 years old, Flanagan is the youngest TD, the third youngest TD in Irish history at that point. How, How old is he? At this he? point, 22, you said? 23? 23. Hmm. That's crazy. That's so young. Yeah. And here he is. I office. feel like I've wasted my life. That is, that's crazy. <laughs> Although, that's not the only case I know of somebody very young taking office. Like, I think the SNP, I don't know if she's still a member of parliament, but I think the SNP had an, a member of parliament who was like 19 when she took office or something. Probably, yeah. Wow. Okay. That's crazy. All right. Well, so is that where we're ending off for today? I suppose it will be going yeah, quite a while. Yeah, we're at an hour and a half. So we'll end there and then we'll talk about Oliver J. Flanagan, the Nazi sympathizer in office. All right. All right. Uh, just some plugs at the end. Uh, our podcast email is running on a post pod at gmail.com. You can email us with fan mail, suggestions, sponsorship offers, or just to say hi. We both have access to it, so we'll read it. Yeah. Uh, our Twitter is at ApposedPod. Follow us there to get updates on the pod. If the schedule changes, we miss an episode, anything like that. Our theme song is courtesy of Oxblood Oxblood on SoundCloud. You got anything you want to plug, Thomas? Uh, afraid not, no. I'm very boring. All right. Well... Join us next week when Thomas takes us through the rest of Oliver J. Flanagan's career. See you then. See ya. Goodbye.